Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield, the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC, and I'm delighted that you're joining me again today for this podcast. Today, after a couple of episodes where we focused distinctly and specifically on the natural science side of things, we're returning to the social sciences and uh, I hope to do this again back and forth over the, the coming podcasts. Our agenda today could hardly be more important or serious. Climate action is stalled despite increasingly unequivocal statements of urgency from science. Why and what can we do about it? What role does science, including social science, have to play in answering these questions, especially helping to answer in practice that latter question of what can or must we do? How does science, again including social science, need to change to meet that challenge? The starting place of Science for the Anthropocene, introduced in previous podcasts, is that the current relationship between science and politics is dysfunctional and exhausted, and that science must now grapple with its neglected power dimensions. But one particularly promising way to explore this agenda in more depth is to approach it from the other side. That is, what can be learnt from a critical social science lens on forms of government, governance and politics as they attempt, and to date unfortunately largely fail, to grapple with the problems of the Anthropocene, such as expedited deep climate action. For if one side of the current dualistic division into knowledge versus power is not working and needs to build bridges in relations to the other, that is science, the same is equally true of the other side, that is politics. And this is particularly apparent regarding government of a problem that only exists, that we only know about because it's been identified by science, like climate change. So Science for the Anthropocene is fundamentally interested in this key relationship between knowledge and politics, and that's precisely what we're talking about today. In fact, this raises a whole host of complex relations between this seemingly simple dyad of power and knowledge for us to explore, and bringing to bear a critical social science perspective that is a reflexive moment regarding knowledge about politics and the government or politics of knowledge. We'll do this today in this episode through the lens of work on climate action and politics, in particular regarding the parallel changes facing a form of political organisation that many of us value highly, that is democracy, and in turn, therefore, of the experimental and ongoing changes to democracy itself that this will entail, specifically in the form of so-called deliberative democracy. And we could be in no better company to discuss this agenda, that is, of climate action, deliberative democracy, and science for the Anthropocene, than my colleague and friend, Rebecca Willis. Rebecca is Professor in Energy and Climate Governance at Lancaster Environment Centre, where she leads the uh, Climate Citizens Project. In 2020, she was an expert lead for the Climate Assembly UK, the Citizens' Assembly established by the UK Parliament. Rebecca is a trustee of the New Economics Foundation and an advisor to the National Lottery's Climate Action Fund. She featured on Woman's Hour, Our Planet Power List, which highlights 30 women making an impact by helping to protect our planet, an accolade she richly deserves. And her excellent book, Too Hot to Handle, The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change, was published by Bristol University Press uh, also in 2020. Welcome, Rebecca. Becky. Thank you. Um, Really delighted to be having this discussion with you and for it to be recorded and shared with our listeners. You may know that we start with a standardised question, so let's just leap into that. Is your science, that is roughly critical environmental social science, fit for purpose in the 21st century? 
mean, just a, just a simple question to mm. kick us off. I, I have to say no, because we're not succeeding with what we need to do for the, you know, in terms of tackling climate change. And so it's incumbent on all of us to question our own orientation and our own contribution. And that's mainly why I say no. I think that there is a need for more critical social science on climate change because as you've articulated in the podcast so far it's not just a case of understanding sort of technical and economic domains that you know what you might call sort of the techno rationalist domain but also having a a deep understanding of of culture of identity of history and the influence of those factors as well of course as, as as you've articulated of power and how those things shape our ability to act on a problem like that you only have to look at something like um, the proposal for the new coal mine in Cumbria in an area deeply shaped by its industrial history to realise the importance of those dimensions. Um, so I would I would absolutely defend the need for critical social science. Where I think it's come a, a, come a cropper in the past is in, in, in two ways. Firstly, that it's probably focused too much on a sort of totalising critique that, you know, this is all a problem of capitalism or a problem of science or something like that. So it's it's focused too much on the kind of that very sort of hard-nosed um, sort of total critique of everything and hasn't really rolled its sleeves up and talked about how it can intervene productively and in actually untangling some of those, you know, cultural and political dimensions that, that, that you need to do to get a grip on these problems. And the second and related criticism I'd have is that it, 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 I, I think we need to be much more upfront about our normative orientation, the fact that we are in this to provide knowledge which is helpful in moving us forward and that that is both a necessary and a... Um, uh, you know, a very justifiable role for 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 research, uh, for academia, as well as those in the wider climate community. So I would say we need to be much more explicit in both defining and defending that normative approach to our work. Excellent. Thanks, Becky. I mean, so already you've pointed towards a, a whole sort of miscellany of, of issues that uh, we can pick up. But as I said in that introduction, we're interested in your work is illuminating of uh, this relationship between power and knowledge, politics and science, what it is now, uh, what it could or should be. And I thought it might be helpful for our listeners just to map out four of the dimensions, at least, which we'll try and talk about uh, over this podcast. The first is looking at these, these questions Uh, just learning about the basic practical problem of how best to do politics and government for expedited climate action, as opposed to how it's currently being done. Then the second question, though, is, so we've got climate action, how is it being done, power and politics, knowledge in that space. But then we cannot spend very long in that discussion without confronting the fact that our politics are not themselves in a very good state, that democracy is not in a very good state. So this is clearly not the ideal situation for tackling unprecedented challenges. Wouldn't it be much easier if our politics was you know, flying? Uh, but it's not where we stand. So in the end, we can't dodge that bullet. And then there are all kinds of insights there about what is going well and badly for democracy as we currently conceptualize it and do it. And specifically, how does thinking about the Anthropocene uh, change or challenge our understanding of democracy and politics. But then from there, we can also look back at what all this means for science, for the science that that politics is drawing upon or calling for. And then finally, and by no means least, we can reflect on everything that we've done and what this tells us about social science and critical social science. So that's a complicated Uh, interwoven agenda of items but all of these things I think are illuminated by your work so why don't we start at the top Uh, the issue that probably most of our listeners will be most immediately concerned about which is 
about urgent climate action and government for it. Uh, what is the problem with our politics regarding climate action? Um, why isn't it happening? The best way to approach this is by thinking about what politics is, or what, at least what democracy is. And democracy evolved as a way of people managing problems collectively because they realised that managing problems collectively was better than everyone trying to, um, you know, find their own individual path through this. And, you know, this is a Hobbes vision, isn't it? In, um, you know, in, in Leviathan, this idea that you're better off with someone guiding you. So, I mean, Hobbes was quite an anti-democratic vision, but if you look at political thinkers since then, they've developed this idea of the social contract, basically, between citizen and state. That that deal between the governed and those being governed that, um, you know, you give up a little bit of your own autonomy in order to have better solutions for everyone collectively. And that is what we need for climate change. We need a, a, a social contract for climate change, which acknowledges that this is a big collective action problem and that we are better tackling it through not just individualised solutions, but collective solutions. But I think what you see at the moment in climate change is, is a breakdown of that social contract, because to look at both sides of it quickly. From the point of view of the state, this isn't true of all states, but you have, you know, in, in countries like ours, the UK, you have pretty strong um, belief in the need to tackle climate change. And remember that nearly every country in the world has signed the Paris Agreement to, to and, and, and agreed that climate is a huge problem and that we need to stabilise emissions. So, you know, in many polities, including our own, there are exceptions, obviously, but, but to use the UK as an example, politicians have agreed that this is a big, difficult problem that needs addressing. But they haven't really had the confidence to speak out to their citizens, to the electorate, about what needs to be done. What you know, what are the many and varied sort of little problems or smaller problems that emerge out of this big problem in terms of changes to transport systems, land use, food, um, energy systems, all that kind of thing. There are a lot of complicated political things in there to unpack, and governments and politicians haven't really had the confidence to. Um, to have that honest conversation with their electorate, so that's on the you know on the, the side of the, the the governors, if you like, turn to the governed, the the the, the citizens or us as individuals, and uh, interestingly, you see quite a similar picture where if you look at public opinion, people are terrified about climate change, you know they are are really concerned about it, and 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 the data is pretty consistent across uh, different socioeconomic groupings. Even in times of pandemic and war, people are still worried. They still want stuff to be done. And who do they say should do stuff? Government, right? They want government to show really clear leadership. Um, they know that they can do things on their own. And we all try, don't we, to see what we can do in our own individual lives. But we know that that's not enough. We know that we need a collective solution to this. And we look to government to provide that. So what we've got is this sort of silent standoff where you know, individuals think this is a really big problem, but government isn't doing anything about it. And government saying this is a really big problem, but I don't think that I can bring people with me is the phrase that's used. And that's a really fundamental impasse. And, you know, over the past few years, I think we've we've begun to see that being chipped away a little bit if you see movements like the, the 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 school strikes for example if you see politicians who are willing to stand up and take leadership um they're often rewarded by 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 the electorate they're often praised for that so you are seeing that beginning to to chip away but what i would like to see and what some of the um what what some of the solutions i talk about um i would hope would bring about would be a much more explicit 
description of the need for that social contract and a a a sort of honest upfront analysis of the climate crisis and what that means for our politics and you know this is there are some really positive changes as well it's not just oh my god there's a big problem we've got to deal with it it's actually an active conversation about what we want our lives to look at and look like what we want our cities to look like um you know what food we want to eat there's a lot of positive stuff in there but you've got to get stuck in and have that discussion Excellent. Thanks. I mean, it sounds to me, and I I don't want to jump the gun of my own agenda here, but um, what you've described there, this silent standoff, very vivid, uh, is, you know, and the collective action problem. It sounds to me like maybe not central. I think I probably would see it as central, but I'd like to hear what you think. Uh, Running through this is there is a question of knowledge. This is why you know, this discussion is so important to science of the Anthropocene, that there's the, uh, both sides of this standoff don't really know what to do. And they don't know how to find out what to do either. And even beyond that, and that's where it goes from the questions about what exactly to do, there's also this how to do it question as well. So, uh, you're talking about the, the the social contract, and if effectively, correct me if I'm wrong. I heard you say that, it, uh, saying implicitly that it, it needs some sort of refoundation, basically. But even first of all, to acknowledge that that is a central problem for climate action is a big step because people think that climate action is actually just about going from uh, an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle. So how does politics come into this? You know, how does, in fact, a constitutional resettlement come centrally into uh, the question of climate change? So seeing that, first of all, is a question of knowledge. And then there's a knowledge of what, well, OK, you've just presented this big problem on my lap about our politics is not fit for purpose. Do we know what to do instead? And how do we know to do that as well? So, so many problems of knowledge is... is, does knowledge run through this all? Have I missed something? Is there something else? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the, the social contract in terms of knowledge, it's a knowledge gap on both sides. It's the politicians and the, the state more widely not having a good enough understanding of what people are worried about, what they want, and what they're prepared to be a part of in terms of climate action. And and that's no surprise because we have had up until now pretty rubbish ways of finding out what people think. It mainly involves, you know, Ipsos Mori picking up the phone and saying, can you rank these things one to ten? Or, you know, pretty... Um, pretty crude means of, of of polling, which doesn't give people the chance to say, OK, you know, if I lived in this sort of world with this sort of politician, this is what I would be prepared to do. You know, all those sort of contingencies and conditionalities generally are not there in research on, on, on public opinion or research on people. Um, and then on the other side of it, you have, you know, if you're looking at what people understand of government, there is, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this, there is an immense cynicism about uh, politics and about politicians, about the ability of the state to grapple with problems of this nature. And so, you know, one of the things that that I've done, which is actually really fascinating, is to talk to MPs, um, members of parliament anonymously about what it feels like to be in that position, what it, what it, what it feels like to try to make decisions about something as big and difficult as climate. And the more we the more understanding that we have about the workings of power and people in power, and I say people advisedly because, you know, there are traditions and cultures in the way that you do power as well. The more that we understand about that um, as the other side of the social contract, the more chance we have of of, of um, charting a way through. That's absolutely right, Becky. <laughs> and it's a really nice segue to my next question, really, which is that you've mapped out their the constituents of the problem that we face when we turn to politics to solve these problems, which is that our current politics is, let's not beat around the bush, manifestly not fit for purpose. And that this is a problem because, uh, especially in the context of ongoing uh, and sort of growing pressures on democracy, um, 
what we don't want to hear, what we don't want to be heard to say is that, well, therefore, democracy is the problem. You've said very, very clearly in your book, for instance, that there is a lot of argument out there that democracy is the problem, whereas you want to say that the problem is not uh, too much democracy, but too little. But that is in the context of admitting, first of all, that the democracy that we have too little of is itself in crisis of, of various kinds. So we see, for instance, calls for eco-authoritarianism. We see examples of eco-authoritarianism which seem to be doing things that democracy cannot, whether or not that is in fact the case. Could you say a little bit, you know, what are the problems with our current model of democracy, not just politics, but democracy specifically? I mean, you've mentioned, for instance, um, a, a fourfold criticism of democracy regarding climate action. Some thoughts on that, perhaps? Let me start with this idea that, you know, this idea of eco-authoritarianism. Sometimes it's very explicit. Uh, you know, someone like James Lovelock, the earth scientist, who actually says we need to put democracy on hold for a while. I, I admire his honesty, to be honest, because what he articulates explicitly is, I think, what a lot of people in the climate movement from climate scientists all the way through to climate activists say implicitly, which is, if only we were in charge, things would be okay. We know what to do. People just need to get out of the way and let us do it. And and, and I think it's a com incumbent on everyone working on climate to think, is that what I'm doing? Am I trying to impose my vision of the solution on the rest of the world? And if you suspect the answer to that might be yes, you need to think really carefully because that might be true. OK, I'd, I'd argue in a lot of cases it's not true, but it might be true that if, you know, someone somewhere could made ma wave a magic wand, all this could change. But the fact is that any proposed solution or action on climate has to be understood, supported or at least not opposed, and implemented by a whole host of actors it has to be voted for. There have to be companies who make it part of their solution, you know, manufacturing electric vehicles, laying on bus services, building houses differently, however that might be. There, there are all kinds of, of, of actors that have to be involved in that transition and sure you can do really good stuff just by passing laws right um and and that has been um a, a really effective tool but those laws have to be passed by politicians who see the the point of them and who fight for them against often quite strong vested interests so what you're actually doing is not imposing solutions but bringing together huge and complex coalitions of the willing in order to muddle through towards a shared goal. And that is actually a description of politics working well. When you do manage to pull together in normally quite informal sort of ragtag coalitions, a group of people and organisations who are broadly heading in the right direction. And by the right direction, I mean, in this case, stabilising the climate, bringing emissions down. One thing we do have for climate, which we don't have for other issues, is a really clearly articulated goal, which has been articulated by the science and by the international, agree international agreement. So in some ways, that is it's easier because that's a, a much more clearly identified goal than social justice, which is a concept argued about, you know, forever. So we do have that goal and we do have the beginnings of that sort of ragtag coalition. We have companies who are desperate for this, but desperate to be part of the solution. We have politicians who know it's a problem. We have, you know, we have a, a climate movement that is vocal and, um, you know, passionate about getting things done. But at the moment, it's it's just not purposive. It's not, um, you know, it's not clear enough that we're all trying to muddle through together. There's a, a lot of opposition and misunderstanding, partly because everyone is imposing their own vision of the, the, the way forward. And there's not enough understanding of other people's positions. There's not enough joint strategizing, sort of finding ways through understanding how other people think about it. So 
I think there's a lot to be said in, in, in really focusing on, you know, what that muddling through looks like, what that sort of untidy coalition looks like. And that is the business of, of, of climate politics. And so rather than dismiss democracy out of hand, I think that we should actually be focusing on ways of bringing together people who do have shared interests, being honest about the um, about the real disagreements and power struggles where they are, but actually focusing on that process of change and the people involved in it. So, so it sounds very much like um, you've given an excellent, clear, impassioned call there for democracy, in fact. And I think a lot of democracy speak sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, sometimes I feel it's sort of rather lazy. Uh, it's uh, it's sloganeering, democracy is good, uh, therefore we need to keep it. And that there is a way uh, in which, you know, democracy is just the, the bearer of, of a normative good in some way. But you've also described there how actually this is how things actually work when they work. Uh, so it's not making a virtue of necessity. Uh, it, it's actually, you know, it's not just the means that we will have to eventually adopt to deal with climate action. It's the means that we have to adopt to deal with any kind of political decision, with, with government per se. Uh, and perhaps if we can confront that and learn again the, the value of democracy, that that will be, a, you know, a positive change. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit and continue to push against democracy for, for a while. Here are some of the criticisms that you yourself have articulated in your work uh, against uh, democracy out there uh, in, in the public sphere, that because of the electoral cycle, uh, representative democracy, electoral uh, democracy is inevitably short-termist, always uh, just trying to win the votes, and people don't vote for long-term plans. Then there's the question about how capable and how uh, specifically democracy makes use of scientific and ex um, science and technological expertise, often in terms of just sort of covering its back. It draws on science and expertise as a way of, uh, you know, get out of jail free card. It doesn't have to make the difficult decision. Then there's the fact that democracy is often highly uh, suboptimal in terms of the actual power relations and entrenched interests uh, that make it work. Uh, look at the role of money, for instance, uh, most obviously, of course, in, in American democracy. But obviously, uh, we're not immune to that uh, either. Uh, or of uh, particular lobbies, maybe high carbon lobbies, um, the role of the, the car industry uh, in Germany, for instance. Uh, and then finally, in terms of the responsiveness of uh, representative democracy. Because again, going back to the electric, electoral cycle, you know, the idea of uh, electoral uh, tyranny, that we get to say uh, who goes into parliament once every blue moon, uh, at which point they can go into government and pretty much do whatever they want. It's obvious that all of those things are a problem with climate action, I think, first of all. How, uh, I mean, could you say a little bit more ab about these criticisms for democracy? Uh, We'll, we will get on to, in due course, maybe ways to, to respond to them. Uh, I think we need to introduce uh, some other concepts first. But I don't know, uh, have I missed anything, for instance, in those criticisms? Do they Are they fair, do you think? Yeah, I think they're absolutely fair. Um, I think particularly for climate, I actually think that the problem of power and money and vested interests in politics is, if anything, more of an issue than the short-termism. I think short-termism is always sort of held up as a problem because obviously, you know, governments are elected or parliaments, I should say, are elected for um, five years at most, generally. And climate, as we all know, is a multi-decadal problem, although very urgent. But I think that the short termism could be overcome because actions on climate are actually quite short term. They need to start now and they, you know, they need a, a, a beginning um, and, a, and, and a middle as well as an end. So, you know, I'd, I'm not so worried actually about those sort of temporal issues. I'm really worried about money and, and power. I think you can see it as an 
you know, as a really invidious force in climate politics. And there's there's plenty of empirical evidence of that. And I also think the way that scientific and technical expertise is used is 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 really problematic. But I think the last point, the responsiveness of representative democracy is 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 really crucial as well for me because I think we've fallen definitely over the last 50 years or so, we've fallen into this idea that democracy means putting a cross on a ballot paper once every five years and that you know we elect a bunch of people who then go on and do their stuff and I think that's a really thin and unhelpful conception of democracy Uh, democracy is about you know the risk of sounding very idealistic democracy is about putting the power in the hands of people and giving people the ability the right and the ability to shape the world that they live in and that can be done in all kinds of ways not just filling in your ballot paper but also um you know talking to your um representatives making your views known participating in civic life yes protesting you know sitting in the street if that's what you 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 feel buying shares in an energy company that's a form of democracy so there's all kinds of ways in which democracy can and should play out but we have this very narrow focus on uh, electoral democracy um, on elections in fact which i think is really really unhelpful so this resonates very strongly with the general approach that we've advocated for science of the anthropocene which is the first thing that we must do is confront the fact that there is a problem and and look at that problem and not immediately leap to whatever is nearest to hand most familiar uh, looking for the solution to the problem in order to fix it so but what you're talking about or talking us through here becky is the challenge we first have to face is well, what do we mean by democracy? What is the democracy that we're trying to save? What is the democracy that uh, we need in order to, to deal with these challenges? So the very sort of conception of that and what are the inadequacies of our current conception, that sort of opening things up. Now, that sort of leads us precisely into you know the key question of what to do instead. At the moment, again, it might f- sound uh, overstated, but... I'm not sure we actually have uh, an example to point to, just like we don't have an example to point to of, of, a, six, uh, of a country that has successfully transitioned uh, to a sustainable economy in totality. It, at the same time, I'm not sure we can point to any country in the world as the example, uh, as things stand, of that democracy that we need. So there's an element of we don't really know what a functioning democracy in the Anthropocene looks like, but we have to find it out. Now, the work that you've done has uh, worked, uh, explored one particular answer to this what instead question, um, how do we need to open up and redefine democracy, which is deliberative democracy. So could you tell us a little bit about what deliberative democracy is and how you understand it? Sure, yeah. So deliberative democracy is a theorisation of democracy, really, which asks how can a democracy work well to include people in decision making and crucially it acts as a a counter explanation of democracy to that vision of electoral democracy I just gave you. In electoral democracy, the assumption is that people's views are preformed and that once every few years they indicate their preference by putting a cross in a box um, and that they then sort of shut up for another few years until they're asked to do the same again. Deliberative democracy, uh, by contrast, is a sort of ongoing negotiation between the citizen and the state, which it involves not assuming that views are preformed. It assumes that, um, you know, as a citizen, you you have all kinds of nuance and conditionality on what you think, that if you're, um, you know, if a politician puts forward a proposal, well, to give you an example, you could, one proposal for tax could be put forward and you think, I don't like that because I don't want my money to be taken away, right? 
Or a government could put forward a proposal for for tax and could explain that, you know, we're going to tax you in this way because we want better public services and explain the rationale for your tax. And you think, yeah, I could I could go for that. You know, I've changed my view on that a bit because I understand this bigger collective that we're trying to that we're trying to create. So, yes, that's fine. So it's about that continuous dialogue between citizen and state. So deliberative democracy can overcome some of those problems of democracy that we were talking about. Um, it, it, it can be less short term because it is, you know, discussing and working towards longer term goals. It takes seriously different forms of knowledge, the knowledge and experience of citizens alongside expertise, because that expertise is sort of presented to citizens and you can talk that through. It would hopefully put a check on power relations because it is much more explicit about, um, you know, who takes part in the political conversation, what happens between elections, who, who's saying what and at what volume. And obviously it's more responsive. So, you know, you can describe this ideal type deliberative democracy, which is about this sort of conversational dialogue. The problem is that in doing that, you sort of start defining ideals and, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, anyone can sit down and say, OK, this is what a perfect democracy looks like. And you see, you're, you know, you're, you're uh, the distance to target is absolutely huge. And that's why, um, and, you know, you may well come on to ask me about this, but that's what's really interesting about about exercises like citizens assemblies which um, you know some people call mini publics or deliberative mini publics because what you're trying to do with an exercise like a citizens assembly is create in an artificially constrained environment create those sort of ideals of democracy create spaces where people can talk to each other in a space that's you know relatively not completely of course but relatively free of those power dynamics um, where both sides can talk to each other and shift their views depending on um, you know depending on the evidence on the table where scientific and technical information is is presented and discussed and you know the politics of that are sort of explicit if you like and and where people can together come to a reasoned solution that is what can happen and I've seen it happen it's absolutely mind-blowing when you see it happen that's what I've seen happen over things Things like Climate Assembly UK, which the UK Parliament commissioned, um, you do see that happening in microcosm, and it, 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 it's just for me, it's absolutely revelatory to see it happen. The problem is that it is in those sort of very constrained, uh, carefully controlled environments. In this case, you know, a hundred people representing the wider UK public, and and you can you can come to reasoned judgments within those groups, but then obviously they get thrown back in the hurly-burly of actual politics and their findings, you know, then fall prey to all the difficulties of the wider political system that we've discussed. We will absolutely come back to uh, those assemblies and examples uh, shortly and also to the some of the challenges to this idea, this ideal even of deliberative democracy. Let me just first of all sort of reflect on what you were saying about deliberative democracy though. What, listening to you speak, a number of things really strike me. The first thing I think is that I encountered and I have thought about deliberative democracy largely in terms of it being a qualification deliberative on democracy rather than, say, representative democracy. And I should add um, that in your telling of this, deliberative democracy is not necessarily against uh, representative democracy. They can, uh, they can go hand in hand. Uh, they, the, 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 the deliberative can be the supplement or the addition to rather than the replacement of the representative. But as I say, listening to you speak, it, it strikes me that playing with these words of deliberative democracy, there's more to it, in fact, as well. There's the idea also implicit in that of democracy as a form of deliberation, as, as much as uh, a deliberative form of democracy. And indeed of, so, you know, of democ the democratic process being refashioned so that it is a a form of societal collective deliberation, optimal de deliberation, um, preferably. But also then that deliberation itself is democratic. So the, the implicit in that vision is precisely 
again, the recognition of this relationship of power and knowledge, that, that they are sort of always there, uh, shadowing each other, uh, and that the way in which society is con constituted, the way, therefore, which it can be governed and conducted effectively and optimally, must recognise that relationship. Uh, and therefore, you were talking, for instance, about the fact that people can, in fact, change their mind. If they are presented with material and allowed to deliberate upon it in a power structure, so power is there, it's just been reorganised in a way that enables them to actually think about these things, not feel that they're immediately having to defend their interests, then positions can change. And as a result of that, if not consensus, then at least the body of political opinion can shift and something that would have been impossible suddenly becomes possible. And so on round and round. So uh, forms of knowledge, forms of deliberation enable forms of power, which enable potentially forms of deliberation. Therefore, we have this positive feedback loop. So I'm now talking again in ideals, right? Attractive ones, I think, but nonetheless ideals. Let's just I think we need to stick a little bit more about what are the objections uh, to deliberative democracy. Could you say a bit about that? Just following on very directly from what I've been saying, I know a standard uh, high-level objection to deliberative democracy is that actually some things are too complicated for the people uh, to be left to be in charge of. Could you say something about that? Other objections to deliberative democracy, even its ideal? Yeah, so, well, there's a couple of linked criticisms and I'll, I'll come back to that problem of complexity. The criticism we always get, and I've had this discussion with a lot of politicians, is that deliberative democracy is somehow a challenge to representative democracy, that it's somehow seeking to replace elections and the electoral system and, and having, you know, a House of Representatives like the the House of Commons in, in, in the UK. And I, I think that's really the wrong way of looking at it. The, you know, my answer to the politicians when they're worried about this is that they are still, you know, they are still the lawmakers. But if you have a more deliberative democracy, if you do more deliberation in your democracy, then what you get as a politician is a much finer grained understanding um, of the people that you are representing, you know, because you, you hear them speak, you hear them, you know, they negotiate directly with you. You don't just see this cross in a box, right? You see so much more. So it develops that 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 social intelligence. And, and for the from the point of view of the citizen, they develop a better understanding of the, the trade-offs and difficulties involved in, in governing. So both sides develop a much richer account of, of what it is to, you know, to, to, to pass law to implement laws to try and govern. And on the on the complexity point, it's actually quite similar because, I mean, for a start, it's just empirically not true that people can't cope with complexity. The, the first deliberative process I was ever involved in um, nearly 20 years ago, I think, was a citizen's jury on nanotechnology, stuff that's so small you can't even see it. And we asked a group of representative citizens from Halifax how we should govern this prospective technology, which at the time was probably only in use in sun creams, I think. And they could grasp it. They had really good conversations with scientists about, you know, the potential advantages, some of the risks of nanotechnology. And they came up with a really sensible um, set of recommendations. So they, you know, it's been shown time and time again that, that that people can do that, but you need to give them the responsibility, the the space to discuss and to learn, the access to information. If you do that, people are entirely capable of, of making decisions about really very complex things. Because remember, that they don't just need to understand the the technical issue to decide how to govern something you need to understand it of course but you also need to understand what people want how this fits into people's lives and so on and that is the expertise that people bring into the process so it's not about 
you know, making sure people can understand technology X or Y. It is what are the different forms of knowledge that we all bring to the table about nanotechnology, for example. Um, you know, me as a prospective user of nanotechnology, you as a, you know, maybe someone who's investing in nanotech and you as the government who has to regulate this. Let's put all our different types of knowledge on the table and see how we can approach this collectively. And if you are, you know, a producer of formal knowledge, you know, like a scientist, isn't that what you want? You know, if so, if you are and and we see this with climate scientists, we see sort of increasing desperation that all this knowledge is being produced on the, you know, the sometimes horrific things that are happening to um, people and to the natural world as a result of the climate crisis. And, you know, I've talked to scientists who feel really powerless about that. And the more powerless you feel, the more likely you are to sort of hit out and and um you know that's when you get back to shouting if only we were in charge but as a climate scientist how refreshing to be able to you know put your knowledge on the table say look this is the evidence i have about what's happening what can we collectively do about this how can we bring all our different perspectives to the table and really think through how we as a society deal with this and that probably sounds like crazily idealistic but actually I think it's pretty practical because it's about um, you know scientists saying okay I've I've diagnosed the problem but I'm not the expert on what to do about it because I don't understand how you know how to shift society and it's people who make up that society saying well you know this is how it feels to me in my life and it's companies saying this is how I could make a business model out of the change and it's government saying this is how we could hold the so I think it's actually quite pragmatic. Yes, I mean, again, really striking me listening to you, uh, but but also reading uh, your stuff. That you know, the other criticism that we touched on, and you mentioned it there in your, your your closing words, that deliberative democracy might sound like an ideal. I completely agree. The, the idealism, it feels to me, does not lie in the idea of bringing deliberation into democracy, or bringing democracy into d- deliberation of uh, decisions for society. The idealism, sort of the unrealistic utopian idealism, almost comes from somewhere else, it feels to me. Uh, It's there still sort of uh, like a gremlin in the corner haunting us um, with a a particular understanding of the relationship between knowledge and politics. This is precisely trying to push us beyond. If the problem in society is simply a techno-scientific one, and then we're calling in non-experts to talk about stuff that is technically expert, that immediately sounds ridiculous. Uh, But what that has already presumed is that only one form of knowledge is is relevant to that kind of decision-making. As soon as we get rid of that assumption, then it goes from being idealistic to being quite obviously pragmatic and indeed doable, which allows us, in fact, now to move on to, you know, some of the evidence about what actually has been done. This is no longer just on the page. It has been done. What are we finding out from these actual experiments? Before we go on to that, I I do want to, I I think there's a really important qualification because, you know, we're we're now jointly describing this sort of beautiful picture where everyone brings their knowledge to to the table and, and, and shares it. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that at the moment and you know probably will forever be this way that disproportionate amounts of power lie with certain actors and on climate disproportionate amounts of power lie with people who have an economic interest in high carbon activities so you know specific companies like um, airlines oil and gas majors um, you know some financial interests and as part of this process of sort of 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 shining a light on how democracy actually happens that messy process we absolutely need to be very clear-sighted about that disproportionate wielding of power and how that you know how that slows us down how that creates all kinds of really unhelpful 
political backtracking and 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 so as part of this deliberative vision i think we need to be absolutely hard-headed about that and necessarily as part of this process we need to be able to um face up to explicitly face up to those power interests and have some really really difficult negotiations absolutely thank you for for mentioning that that becky um it, I mean, this is, I completely agree, again, uh, essential. One of the, again, one of the ways in which bringing knowledge and power or acknowledging the relationship between knowledge and power comes to bear, uh, I think, uh, is very much precisely what you've just laid out, that power is always going to be there. We can't actually set up any kind of deliberative money public in which power uh, is absent or at least in which the findings of that is going to sort of just pass into uh, into law, L-O-R-E, as much as L-A-W. But there are sort of two important aspects to that. I think once we acknowledge that power is always there, then there are two things that we can do. First of all, we can actually begin to have a language that can talk sensibly, even you know, without being patronising, in a grown-up way about power. We have a, a grown-up language for talking about power within those deliberations that that is something that has to be discussed or at least has to be mentioned so that people know that that is going on because uh, people are not idiots, basically. They understand uh, where the power lies and they can either feel oppressed by that and silenced and censored or they can say they can say things as they see them. And that's an absolutely essential part, it seems to me, of of deliberative uh, democracy. Um, And again, perhaps breaking with some sort of traditions of deliberation which are purely in the rationalist or cognitive register. The other aspect of that is recognising that because power is always there, that the way in which we can have those discussions will always be imperfect, but potentially, if we can recognise that it's imperfect, they might be improving. If if we can self-consciously remember that it's always there, then we can be learning about how to do this better next time uh, and then next time and then next time so that we don't just have one example and find that, oh, well, it didn't have the outcome we wanted and people felt silenced or the, the results weren't taken up by government and therefore deliberative democracy is a failure. Um, which is, you know, a sort of very defeatist attitude, but again, one that has presumed that it's going to fail and lo and behold, it does. Well, of course it's going to fail because it's not perfect and it never will be. But that's just the way things are if we admit that power is always there. Can we turn to some of these examples now? So tell us a little bit about some of the deliberative, not so many publics uh, or many publics that you've been involved in personally. What, what, what's been learned from these? Sure, yeah, I mean... What it's been incredible over the past sort of five years or so to see this flourishing of of deliberative processes, not just in on climate actually, but in all kinds of areas. And the the OECD has has coined this term deliberative wave to describe what's going on. Some of the inspiration came from Ireland, actually, where um, as part of the the sort of constitutional settlement, they institutionalised citizens' assemblies. And behind both the referendum on equal marriage and on abortion in Ireland, before those referenda were held, there were citizens' assemblies. And it was those assemblies which gave the politicians confidence to propose changes to the constitution and which actually broke the impasse on issues which had been absolutely divided in Ireland, particularly on the abortion issue. And so that that is a really interesting example of, of what can be done because to take the Citizens' Assembly on a abortion and there's there's fascinating accounts of this the citizens involved if they generally speaking if they were um, you know depending on their views on the abortion issue they didn't come out of the citizens assembly having changed their mind on that fundamental issue but they did come out of it having changed their mind on how um, it should be 
dealt with and legislated for because they had been exposed to, you know, talking to people who thought differently. They had to be, they had been exposed to all the evidence and they managed to chart a way through, even though they agreed to disagree. And that, I think, is, is a brilliant example. In terms of the ones I've been involved in, uh, the, the, the biggest was the Climate Assembly UK, which was 100 um, citizens representative of the UK as a whole who were brought together over um, four weekends to answer the question of how the UK should meet its target of net zero emissions by 2050. That was instigated by Parliament, by six different select committees. And we really looked at everything. You know, we looked at, 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 at food, land use, transport, um, energy use in the home, um, the whole range of issues, everything, you know, all, all this, the ways in which we emit greenhouse gases. We looked at how we could get that all the way down to zero. We even looked at removing uh, technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And I mean, it worked you know, and people were, remember, people were selected to be representative of attitudes to climate change across the piece. So it wasn't just people who cared about climate. We had people there who denied the science. We had people there who weren't that bothered. But they did agree collectively on a coherent and ambitious plan to get us to net zero. But what was really interesting as part of that was talking to individual participants about how they were thinking of this. And it was, again, it came down to this sort of conditionality that they would say that they didn't want to drive as much as they did, but there was no public transport available or, you know, bad or expensive bus services. And so if government, you know, if there was more investment in public transport, they'd be prepared to make that shift. Other people... Uh, you know, said, well, look, I'm always going to eat meat. You know, you're not going to turn me vegan, but I can understand how, as a society, we need to reduce meat and dairy consumption now that I've seen the evidence. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be a part of that. It, you know, it's fine. But they, they might, you know, they, they have this, Some sometimes I was even talking to people who were, you know, basically being really rude about vegans and having very clear sort of cultural attitudes. But understanding what what they were you know what collectively needed to be done and so it's actually in those individual conversations about conditionality about what people want to do are willing to engage in sometimes are willing to accept even though it's not their preference that is the magic of it for me and not just from the point of view of the citizens but if you talk to the experts that we involved and the politicians them developing a much better understanding of what kind of approach would be successful about how to in engage people, about, you know, how to work with people to sort of develop a vision of the kind of place we want to live in. Um, I think it was really impactful for them as well. And that's definitely the feedback we got from talking to politicians who came to watch and to take part in the discussions. What I hear you say with my agenda, with my science for Anthropocene hat on, um, is that these are incredible places for learning of all kinds by all kinds of people uh, and collective learning. And people will, everybody will be taking slightly different, something slightly different away from their experience. There's a lot that they have in common. They've come together. Um, they've learned that they have in common. But yes, they will have been. Uh, educated on the, in quotes, um, science of the problem. Uh, but they will also um, have learnt a way of thinking about it uh, which they can incorporate, they, they can claim that, that it fits um, with their values and maybe therefore they've, they've decided, they've learnt, to use that word again, to, to, to be open to a shift in behaviour of some kind. Maybe even subliminally, they've shifted their value positioning in some way. Then there's the learning that you talked about potentially for politicians, the all-important learning about, well, what is the electorate actually wanting from them? And then, last and by no means least, there's the learning by the people who run these things, like you, about how can we do it better uh, what didn't work and what can we do better so that there's even more of the learning that I was just describing by everybody. Maybe that just leads us to, to our, our final set of questions then. 
which is what is the key learning for you as this uh, critical social scientist? What have you learnt from these processes, uh, specifically, of course, regarding the problems of the Anthropocene? Well, what I'd like to think I've learned is a, a certain amount of humility, really, that it's not up to me to define the perfect process by which we will somehow get to net zero emissions by 2050. It's it's really important that we have those visions, that, you know, we have the scenarios that we have, you know, if, if you think of the, of, of, of the models and the scenarios that organisations like the Climate Change Committee use to prove that it's technically feasible to get to net zero by 2050, that we can make the changes we need in our transport systems, in our land use, in our energy systems and so on. We absolutely need those to show that it's technically possible. But we also need the humility to be able to step back and say, look, a really important part of the path to net zero is working with people to make sure that they feel part of that change and that they can um, reflect that in not just how they buy, what they buy, which seems to be the dominant way we have of looking at, at things, but how they vote, how they relate to each other in communities, what they invest in, what jobs they do, um, and that really we we take people's expertise and views and values really seriously, and that does require a certain amount of humility. I think it also, to be honest, requires a certain amount of realism that we we don't want or need people to go through this sort of... Uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier a shift in, in, in value positioning. We don't need people to have this kind of eureka moment that everything they believed in so far is is not true. Um, in fact, we, we want people to accept that people are are motivated or animated by often very different values that our political systems reflect that and that that's actually quite a positive thing um it can be pathologized and that's what we're seeing in the US for example with you know the the, the huge depth now depth of of difference between democrats and republicans we're not at that stage in the UK if we accept people's different value positionings and have an open discussion about that, that's one of the things that people really love in these in these deliberative processes, that they talk to people who are, you know, different age, different background, different political worldview. And you know what? They do it really respectfully and really politely and they don't try and change each other's minds, but they try to understand each other. So again, there's a sort of humility needed that, you know, it's not about trying to turn everyone into a sort of, you know, progressive climate activist. It's about understanding the motivations and the values that drive their lives and thinking about a climate strategy that they can at best be an active part of and at the very worst have a sort of what in politics might be called loser's consent for the changes that they might not like, but they agree to live with. Everything you just said, Becky, I think, it, I mean, you, you were talking very personally there, but I think it does reflect uh, enormously uh, also on um, the the lessons for critical social science more generally in terms of um, critical social science, I think quite rightly, it's to be applauded that it celebrates its its radicalism of thought Climate change demands radical change to the way we live. There needs to be radicalism in in climate action and act, uh, and politics about climate action, and yet radicalism with a capital R or as a, a self conscious identity, I think, also sometimes gets in the way, including within critical social science, uh, it, especially if it stands a positively and. Uh, self-consciously against pragmatism and one of the things I, th I again I heard you describe there which is just hugely uplifting actually is that when if you participate in this process it sounds like a, what a lot of people take out of it actually is just a sense of collectivity actually that they're no longer alone and it feels to me like a lot of the critical intellects de desire for radicalism and clear answers is because that it feels that it is alone that it 
uh, it doesn't feel like it has any levers on power. It doesn't feel like it's uh, in it together with anybody. It can't trust anybody. So it needs to be absolutely clear and definitive about this is what we have to do. Um, whereas if you enter into a process like this and you find that people you might disagree with quite viscerally on all kinds of things, actually that there's some common ground and that you can not only find that there is common ground to start with, but you can actually move together uh, in a particular direction on some issues, then you don't know, you no longer need to hold on to this idea that you, n you have the answer uh, about where all this is going. You have the radical proposal. I think that's a really positive message uh, per se, but I think it's a really positive message for you and me and our colleagues in critical social science. I can see you nodding. The, 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 the listeners cannot. I don't know if you just finally like to reflect on that. Yeah, the reason I was nodding is because radicalism and pragmatism are often seen as opposites, aren't they? That, you know, you're either sort of radical and idealistic or you're pragmatic and you're like, oh, this is what the world's like. To my mind, there is nothing more radical than saying we have this really big and difficult challenge ahead of us and you know what? I'm not going to give you the answer. <laughs> you know, my radicalism lies in saying that the the answer to that is one that is collectively formed and argued over, one where the power relations involved in that argument are made explicit and the actual defining of the way forward is is a collective effort and, and and that is a sort of i don't know you could call it a pragmatic radicalism from that point of view that you're i mean we have to be absolutely set on the end goal i mean the idea of not stabilizing the global climate is 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 is, is, is pretty terrifying and you know one that i want to avoid however we can. So you absolutely need that radicalism of purpose. But that doesn't mean that you have to be the one who sets out your radical vision that everyone else has to follow it. it you know, I, I find it much more interesting to think about how can we make this a pragmatic conversation about how we achieve that radical end. Thank you, Becky. So covered a lot of ground, uh, as I hoped and was sure we would. Thank you so much. You know, however, that uh, we need to end with our closing question, which is, if we are now proverbially going over the cliff and urgently need a science for the Anthropocene, a science for the Anthropocene, I should say, will we learn to fly? I mean, my answer to that is emphatically, yes, we will learn to fly because we part of the process of learning to fly is that sense that we all have this shared that we need to you know we need to and we actually do have this shared goal and that we need a sort of determination that we can do this so as soon as you fall prey to sort of doomism or pessimism you lose that ability to work on this together to confront the challenges that we face so you know and there is, I, I don't see any any answer other than, uh, yeah, we can do this, or at least we can have a bloody good go at it. Professor Rebecca Willis, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for listening. Please join us again in our next episode. And if you've enjoyed this, please tell just one friend about this podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.